Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Doctor Family podcast. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by a chemical pathologist who's a specialist in the diagnosis and management of a number of medical issues. They range from metabolic bone disorders to inborn errors of metabolism. However, for today's episode, we'll be concentrating on a major area of their work, which is the management of high cholesterol. We'll be describing what cholesterol is, what it's for, how having too much of it affects you and your body, and what you can do about it. It was interesting to note that this interview was carried out, both of us wearing masks. I suspect, however, you won't notice that, but you may notice some of the noises of a little, as well as the local seagulls causing a bit of mischief. So today I am joined by Dr. Kate Shipman, who is a chemical pathologist, which is a specialty you may not have heard about. And we're very lucky to have her sharing her expertise with us today. So perhaps just to start with, you might be able to tell us a little bit about the, the area of your specialty and the sort of things that you tend to look at within medicine. Yeah. So I, uh, chemical pathology, I think it's probably most people have heard of condition, um, uh, specialties like haematology and microbiology. So we're similar, we share the pathology discipline, but when the haematologists look after patients with blood um, problems and the microbiologists look after people with infections, we tend to focus on people with biochemical problems. So those are things that are either caused by enzyme defects, um, so are detected by biochemical tests or monitored or managed by biochemistry primarily. We tend not to have inpatient um, workload like other specialties because our, the rest of the time we look after the laboratory services. So that's the tests we offer, um, how tests are selected, how they're reported, and we help people um, interpret the results. Fabulous. And in terms of the tests, there are so many tests available now. I think we could probably devote an entire episode to biological tests that, that are run in laboratories and the other areas such as sensitivity, specificity, that the, the things that people don't tend to know about. They tend to think if you have a blood test, it'll tell you an answer which is definitive and that's the end of things. And we know things aren't uh, as black and white as that. But in terms of the sorts of patients that you might very well often see, and certainly the interactions that we as GPs have with uh, you and your specialty it's it's largely around cholesterol and lipids i think that's yes. that's the vast majority of the stuff that i've seen uh, yeah and i think you'll find that's what most chemical pathologists do because most of the other specialties don't have any um, lipids specifically in their curriculum but also trained in diabetes nutrition embonerism metabolism like um, lysosomal storage disease um, phenylketonuria mm -hmm. um, and also metabolic bone diseases so we have five main areas but you'll find that most people focus on the lipid clinic excellent so i think the other ones are very interesting but in terms of today's podcast i think we're going to focus a little bit on the cholesterol and the lipid side of your work which i know is something that i've been asked about by a number of my patients so perhaps if we just started we talk about cholesterol in itself it's something which is obviously out there in the media a lot a lot of people are worried to know what their cholesterol levels are and how that will affect them Perhaps just give us a little overview of the role of cholesterol within the body normally and then perhaps what the problem is with having too much of it. Yes, of course. So um, if we talk about fats in general, probably is the easiest way to start. Fats are defined as being insoluble in water, so they're a group of compounds. Um, and there are two major groups within fats, and those are triglycerides and cholesterol. Triglycerides are actually the dietary fat. And they're long chains and we break the ends of the chain off sequentially and that releases energy. So that's the dietary fat and that's what we store as energy. Cholesterol is a subgroup of a type of fat that looks very different structurally. They're actually little carbon rings 
and they form cell walls and the basis of hormones like um, testosterone and estrogen and vitamin D. Every cell within our body actually synthesizes the cholesterol we require. Um, so I think the first confusion that people get is that when they talk about dietary fat, they think about cholesterol. Whereas actually cholesterol hijacks and sort of sneaks in with the rest of the dietary fat, but really is a very minor component of absorption and diet. I think that's the first confusion. It, it is, and I, I certainly remember from my days of biochemistry, you know, drawing out the, the, the chemical pathway to, to the synthesis of cholesterol, and you could see how very easily you, the body can make cholesterol from carbohydrates, the sugars uh, within the, the diet. So it's obviously an important factor which is, which is necessary. What's the problem when there's too much of it? So the issue is that because there's a bit of cholesterol that sneaks into the dietary fat, once all the dietary fat has been removed from these lipoprotein particles, and we put the fat in particles because fat's insoluble in water, so it can't tr be transported around the blood without being wrapped up. And it, I think the easiest way is to imagine it like people in a bus. So the bus collects all the people from the gut, and it's almost all entirely triglycerides, and a few cholesterol sneak in. And then the bus goes round, depositing the triglycerides everywhere, and then you're left with the naughty people at the back of the bus. <laughs> And this is the cholesterol that causes us issues. So it's not the stuff that's being made within cells for production of hormones or the cell wall. It's the stuff that's snuck in the dietary fat. We have receptors that allow us to pick that up, a bit like bus stops, recognising the bus number, which changes when it's entirely cholesterol. Um, but if you're less efficient at sneaking all those buses up and clearing the arteries, you're left with small, dense particles which can go in between the cell walls and cause deposition there, which pushes the cell layers in, narrowing the blood vessels. And that's um, part of a process called atherosclerosis, which results in heart attacks and strokes. Well, that's very, that's very interesting, actually. The, the, the fact that it is a dietary cholesterol seems to be causing a lot of the problem there. The packaged cholesterol within these buses, as you describe, getting lodged within cell walls, causing this atherosclerosis, the, the damage to the cell wall. Uh, does it trigger an inflammatory response as well? Yes, so we believe that inflammation is a larger component to this. And this is why you do see, or we used to see, increased rates of heart attacks and strokes, for example, with people with rheumatoid arthritis. But with the advent of all the excellent um, immunosuppressive drugs, including biologic agents that people now take, we found that we've almost obliterated the increased cardiovascular disease in people with inflammatory condition. So you were saying the, the inflammation just generally within the body predisposes or increases the risk of damage to the cell walls, yeah. sorry, the, the, the blood, blood vessel walls. Yeah. So I was, I was just wondering, does, does the cholesterol itself trigger an inflammatory response or is it just caught within the cell wall and, and, and there is an inflammation yes. associated with it? So the fat also can cause inflammation and particularly, um, so some of the particles do it more than others because you can get deposition with the triglycerides as well. Um, so all our fat in the diet, we should absorb really immediately after eating, a bit like sugars. You should see more come down quickly. So people have remnant dyslipidemias or so that triglycerides and cholesterol floating about for longer at more risk of getting that deposition. And then within that, the different particle type buses, some of them are more oxidative and cause more sort of inflammation reaction than others. So small, dense LDL are probably the most dangerous from that point of view. And they are associated people when you do a biochemical blood test. If you see a low HDL, so that's less than 1 in a man and less than 1.2 in a woman, and triglycerides that are high, greater than 1.8, 
greater than 1.7, so 1.8 and above, then that's um, associated with the atherogenic lipoprotein phenotype, which you've since discovered to be due to smaller, denser LDLs, which are more oxidative and therefore cause more of a reaction of the atherosclerosis. And that pattern is caused entirely by obesity. So if you see a low HDL and a high triglyceride in anyone, even if their BMI is within normal limits, that person is storing fat around the middle, which is causing the particles to become smaller and denser and much more atherogenic. And this is why HDL got the reputation for being a good cholesterol, but actually having more HDL is not protective at all. Just having a low HDL is bad. And it's not because HDL is good, it's because when low HDL is low, that infers the LDL particles have got worse. Okay, so that is very interesting because certainly it's something that a lot of my patients have clung on to for a long time. I, I might have a high cholesterol, but it's okay because my HDL cholesterol is is, is high as, 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 a, as a ratio. So that, that, that thinking is changing. Yes. Okay, now the other thing that, that that brings me to that patients often come in and talk about is when we've identified that they've got a raised cholesterol, in practice, we'll be looking at people's risks of heart attack and stroke over the next 10 years to make to allow us to have a discussion with them about the risk benefit of taking a medication, for example, a statin to reduce their cholesterol. And I very often find them coming in a little bit like they're trying to bargain. They're saying, well, how about I just try and sort my diet out first before we consider taking a medicine? Because clearly we don't want to take medicines if we can avoid it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on diet versus pills, or is it not something mutually exclusive? Um, so you're right. So there's whatever your problem is, if you are fitter and thinner, particularly if you did no exercise and were slightly obese, then changing that has a, as big a cardiovascular prote protection and prevention as taking a tablet. Of course, if you take both together, then you'll get double the reduction. Um, it also slightly depends upon what your dyslipidemia is. So if you have a pure hypercholesterolemia, which means that your total cholesterol is high because your LDL cholesterol is high, that is almost entirely genetic or hormonal. So it's quite common in women after the menopause for their cholesterol to shoot up. And also it's things like familial hypercholesterolemia. If you have a mixed dyslipidemia where the triglycerides are high, and because those triglyceride-rich buses also contain cholesterol, the total cholesterol looks higher. So you have a higher total cholesterol, but it's being driven by triglyceride-rich particles. That is extremely amenable to lifestyle modification. Mm. And if the HDL is low and you've got a high triglyceride, the only way really to fix that is with weight loss. So if those are the patterns that you have, then weight loss is significantly beneficial and you can return your cholesterol to normal. But if it's a pure hypercholesterolemia, then it usually makes very little difference. Interesting. I, something else that struck me while you were describing these, these different patients who've got different lipid fat profiles, you, you, you described some people who even are you know, not in the overweight or obese category who, who sort of unfortunately do have this collection of lipids which is which is unhealthy they store the weight in the wrong place are they the same patients who would go on to have for example fatty liver so the non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver which we see more and more these days indeed so and we call it there's Reven described it ages ago called it a metabolic syndrome or syndrome x and so if you have a if you have you've also been this theory called the theoretical thigh compartment which says that you're born with this space where you can store extra weight and once you've filled that space then the rest of the fat goes in 
bad places like your liver. Some people's space is very large and some is tiny. And I've seen great difference in BMIs when people present with the metabolic syndrome, including people at BMIs of 20 or 21. So once you've got that fat going in the wrong places, you get hypertension, gout, diabetes, fatty liver, and PCOS, and the dyslipidemia, all of which associated with vascular disease, and all of which are extremely easy to fix if you lose weight. But that might be one kilogram in someone who's already quite thin to a stone or two in someone who's quite overweight. And it's... Though there's ethnic differences that Caucasians can eat more and do less exercise than almost every single other ethnicity um, described, within each ethnic group there's variation too within families and there are just some people who can't really eat. That's fascinating and depressing at the yeah. same time. <laughs> In terms of the other, the, the other treatment that we've talked about for cholesterol, which is statins, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, is there a significant role for statins in people who are, for example, storing fat in the liver? Is that something that helps at all? Yeah, so it will. you'll still get the same benefit from whatever the condition is. So if you look at people with heart disease because of diabetes or heart disease because of high cholesterol or heart disease for any cause, if you reduce the cholesterol by one millimole, everyone gains the same reduction um, in CVD risk, cardiovascular disease risk. So it doesn't actually matter what the problem is. So if you've got a risk because you've got um, a metabolic syndrome, the statin will still reduce your risk. It doesn't mean, however, of course, this one risk you can bring back even better if you then lose the weight on top, where someone with a genetic dyslipidemia wouldn't have that um, ability to change their dyslipidemia, but they would also gain cardiovascular benefits and being fit and trim, but it just wouldn't cause you a biochemical resolution. So I, th I think the other, the, other, the other part of that, obviously, is that we are seeing in these people who are storing fat in their liver their liver function is decreasing and they are at risk of developing um, cirrhosis of the yeah. liver down the line. Obviously, losing the weight is going to be a, the biggest part of that. But yeah. does does a statin make any difference, as far as you're aware, to the to the lipid within the liver? Not that I'm aware. We don't bill it as a preventative or cure for that. There are so, some interesting stuff in, but really, I think at the moment, it's weight loss. You've just got to lose <laughs> the weight. Just got to lose, gotta the, lose weight. the weight. Okay. Yeah. Again, so another sad, depressing uh, story there. <laughs> So if we come back to the main uh, treatment that we have for our patients who have got a, a raised cholesterol, uh, particularly the ones who've got the, the, the more dangerous form, which is likely to form these atherosclerotic plaques, these lesions within the walls of the, the arteries, what, what's the role of the statin? What do we know that's doing? So the statin basically blocks part of a cholesterol synthesis pathway. So it blocks an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, which is a rate-limiting step. So it slows down your cholesterol synthesis, which means that you have to put more of those sort of bus stops, those receptors on your cell membrane, and take up more of those naughty buses going past because you can't make as much as you could before and you still require some cholesterol. So it clears out the blood vessels by slowing down your own production of cholesterol. And it's nice and safe. We've shown even in in vitro experiments that actually your steroid hormone production, for example, so cortisol, the stress hormone, if you put an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, such as a statin, into the cells and then stimulate the cells to make the steroid hormones from cholesterol, all of these pathways continue in the presence of a statin because there's so much capacity. So we're just slowing it down a bit so you have to clear the cholesterol that's knocking about out of the blood. Taking it from the wrong place where it's causing exactly. mischief. Yeah. Great. So the other problem, obviously, is that statins have got a terrifically bad press. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of enemies of the statin out, out there. What's your take on that and how do you express that to the patients that you're seeing? 
so generally the risk has been is very low so you do hear a lot of people um, talking about joint aches particularly so the problem with statins is that one in 10,000 people can get rhabdomyolysis which is head-to-toe muscle breakdown um, it happens if you have the flu for example and everything hurts you can't move out of bed it's not a permanent thing the muscles regenerate quite quickly if you were doing perhaps gardening or something like digging up your hedge when you're not used to it you know the, the back hurts the next day and your legs hurt the next day and your arms hurt the next day that's rhabdomyolysis so it's quite a common and sort of normal phenomenon, but this is just being caused by the drug. So we warn people of it, and I think a lot of people have therefore misinterpreted joint aches, etc., to rhabdomyolysis. So if you had rhabdomyolysis with statins, all your muscles should be painful and tender. It's not joints, and you'll see a nice raised CK, which is a blood test of the contents of the muscle cells being released into the blood. So the vast majority of people I see with issues tend to describe joint aches, and SCKs are completely normal. So there's no objective evidence at all of any functional problems. And often you see that there's a background of having joints, aches, long-term anyway. I think there's some confusion also that if if you look at the trial, the rates of muscle aches were always high, but it was high whether you had the sugar tablet or the statin. So I think part of it is that the population groups that were generally treating are people who've had heart attacks and strokes and therefore are older and are more likely to have muscular skeletal complaints. Um, And we also know that there are quite a few problems, say, for example, after a stroke, often people feel really tired for about a year. And it takes them a year suddenly and then they like a new person again. And they don't understand why they feel so bad for such a long time. And there's probably a real argument there's something to do with that brain injury that makes people feel ill and achy. Also, we start things like beta blockers, antihypertensives, all of which can have real side effects. So I think statins get attributed to a lot of these. And actually, they're not the agent of the problems. And then you've got the, the converse of people who haven't got any disease at all, who are being started on a statin and don't really want to be taking a tablet. So then I think they attribute aches and pains that they'd normally just ignore to this new medication because they're not particularly keen on taking it in the first place. Um, so it's not to say that you can't get rhabdomyolysis. I've seen one case of it and I do nothing really but statin to pedal. Um, but um, <laughs> it's quite obvious and it's quite a distinct condition. So generally they're very safe and they've actually... She's been with children now for quite a long time and children have never had a documented side effect. And the safety data is so overwhelming that they actually got ethics to do trials in pregnant women and have completed the safety trials in pregnant women and even the fetuses are fine. So as a class of drugs, they're extraordinarily safe in comparison to hypertensives, which have common side effects. Yes, yeah, so it's fascinating. I, I often go down the route of showing them the benefit that they will have in terms of the reduction in risk of death or or, or disability from a heart attack or stroke, and then allow them to sort of make their own decision. But often I will say, have a try, and then if you do run into problems, then stop it, that the problems aren't uh, permanent. And I think that's that's a good point, is that the statin side effects, if they are, it's temporary, whereas a dense hemiplegia from a stroke is permanent. And so if you can avoid that with a tablet of no side effects, it's worth it. And if you have side effects, then you just stop it. Uh, the other thing which I think has come out fairly recently is the benefit of statins for the older adult. Yes. There's been a lot of pressure on general practice, particularly, but I suspect in hospital as well, to de-prescribe, to stop prescribing medications to people uh, when there's an uncertain benefit. And that's often the case later in life. Now, I, I believe there's been some recent data which suggests that there is potentially even more benefit in, in older adults as well. Yes, and I think part of the problem with the data is that you want people, but for probably the benefit increases with time off. So if you've got someone with familial hypercholesterolemia, then starting it at the age of 10 may give them 70 years of life. Whereas if you're starting at someone of 82, who's always going to die at 88. If you got them to 86 and a half, 
then the benefit looks smaller. Also, if you're starting to treat it in older groups, often there are people you've whittled out the undiagnosed genetic dyslipidemias, the type 1 diabetes, the other problems that cause premature vascular disease. You've already got a group of people who've probably got genetically excellent arteries and they've got a good genetic hand of cards. And so therefore the benefits look smaller. But we know that economically and also clinically there is benefit and now because our populations are so healthy and have a really good healthy retirement if you're healthy and fit then you don't want a stroke because if you have a stroke will our medical care so good will keep you alive for another 10 years and you can't guarantee that that will be your final event so if you can prevent it to the time when you're frail enough that it is your final event sort of play hedging your bets really but yes, there is. And it's particularly if you've got diabetes and you're older age, that there the benefits even more because that's another vascular risk factor. Excellent. We discussed a lot there about, about the, the risks that the statins pose, or in, in this case, don't pose, the benefits that they in, infer on patients in terms of reduction in risk of heart attack and stroke. We've also talked a little bit about why some people might start on them. So people who've had a heart attack or stroke they will be started on one as what they call secondary prevention to try and prevent further episodes where there's a very clear and obvious benefit to the patient. Then there's the primary prevention. So the the people who we've just identified as potentially having a slightly increased risk of heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years using various risk calculators that we might use in practice. But there are another group of patients for whom the calculators might not be quite so good. And those are these people with what we call familial hypercholesterolemia. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so familial hypercholesterolemia is quite a common monogenetic condition, which means there's one gene that you inherit from either parent, which gives you a high cholesterol from birth. And the problem is there's a mutation in either the bus number or the bus stop for those LDL particles, which are the ones which have the remnants of the cholesterol left in from the dietary particle. And these are the ones that cause the atherosclerosis. So it means that Part of your, so half of your system that recognises it is blind and cannot see the particles. So you don't think you've got any and you can't take them up. It's completely asymptomatic because having the high cholesterol doesn't really do anything. It doesn't make you feel ill until you have your first event, which can be heart attack or stroke or peripheral vascular disease. And this can occur as early as in childhood and late teenage years. And there are, you can sometimes see cholesterol deposition around the eyes. So which is yellow stuff on the eyelids called xanthelasma or a corneal arcus, which is a white ring around the iris. You can see tendon thickening, so lumps in tendons, but only the lumps in tendons are pathognomonic, which means that's the only condition that really causes it. The cholesterol around the eye can occur if anyone with a cholesterol greater than three, but usually we say that if they're older than 40, we're less suspicious. If they're younger than 40, we'd be much more suspicious that there might be an underlying genetic condition. It's very common, there's more than 2,000 mutations described in every single population around the world and we think that the cholesterol mutations infer some benefit against gastrointestinal illnesses. So it saved you from dying of cholera in childhood. And of course in the old days, no one lived to see a pension. So dying at 40 of a heart attack wasn't a problem if you could survive childhood. So I think that's why it's so common that people have so much high cholesterol. But if you look at some of the hunter-gatherer tribes, our cholesterols tend to be at three or lower. And our LDL receptor is only designed to work up to a level of 1.8. And most of the people's level is about 3. It shouldn't go any higher than that. And in the new PCSK9 trials, you've got people down to an LDL cholesterol of 0. And they just get better quicker. 
So we don't actually need that cholesterol circulating, but we think there's so many mutations pushing it up because of that gastrointestinal illness protection. So you mentioned this this new treatment. This is something that you might have read about in the tabloid newspapers. It's an injectable treatment to yeah. lower cholesterol. Yes. And I think there's some quite favourable evidence yeah. coming out from that standpoint. So, um, so it supports us in the theory that reduction of LDL cholesterol is good and that there was no lower limit. So this is the first time we've been able to render people with an LDL cholesterol of zero and indeed, they showed tremendous benefit, and the benefits were linear. So there's no, it doesn't get less benefit when you're at the lower values. A one millimole reduction, at whether your starting level was 14 or 2, still has the same benefit. It's a fascinating drug, actually, because um, they discovered a, um, some families who have zero cholesterol, and have always had zero cholesterol, and seem to live forever with no heart attacks or strokes. They found that they had a mutation in the PCSK9 in, um, protein, and so they, um, and they had produced none that didn't circulate. So they created an antibody to take it out as a sort of theory to see if they could cause the same. And they did. And from discovery of this genetic mutation to the drug being on the market took 10 years, which is the fastest ever from the discovery of a genetic mutation in the family to a drug being on the market. So basically, cholesterol reduction works at any form. It doesn't actually matter what drug you take. It's just the PCSK9 inhibitors tend to reduce the LDL by 60%. Maximum dose statin does about 50% and primary prevention dose statin does about 40%. Azetimibe probably does another 5% on top. So I would add it into other medications or use it by itself. But it's basically doing exactly the same thing as statins do. So there's nothing magic about it except that it's a bit more effective and it's a different statin agent. And I understand it's, it's likely to be brought into use within the NHS within a year or so, is and that we're right? We're already using the PCSK ah. inhibitors, so we've had it for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, phenomenal. Okay. Really and, good. And, and what are the criteria for being able to prescribe that? So for so we have to do it in secondary care because it's a new drug, it's expensive, but they negotiated a deal with the NHS so that if we provided out of secondary care, it would be cheaper. And I think it was just to make sure that the right people got it. Then it's limited to primary prevention only for familial hypercholesterolemia if the LDL is still greater than five, which means their total cholesterol will be about seven. And then it's for secondary prevention if your LDL is greater than four, which would mean your cholesterol is six, or if you've had more than one event or in more than one place, so like a stroke and a heart attack or two heart attacks, then it would be an LDL greater than 3.5, which gives you an LDL of 5.5. Um, ideally, though, in secondary prevention, our target is an LDL of less than 1.8. So this is a big group who are higher than 1.8, but less than 3.5, who in whom we cannot escalate therapy. They also say you have to have tried all the standard things first, and if you don't tolerate them, it doesn't matter if you're still not on anything, but you have to have tried things. Mm. So a large number of patients are actually already on maximum dose statin, azetimibe, and then get the PCSK9 as well, because they've got genetically high cholesterol to one or two who are intolerant to medications, mm. who've had multiple heart attacks and mm. strokes. It's mm. fascinating. And it is administered as an injection, I presume. Yeah, so yes. um, if you get prescribed it, you do it yourself at home. Mm. It's once every two weeks, and it looks a bit like an EpiPen. Okay. So it's a single-use pen device, um, and everyone's actually got on really well with it. That's 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 very very exciting and new, news to me. So I'm looking forward to taking that back. I think the last thing I'd really love to cover, and I think it's another big question that people are going to ask. We mentioned that exercise is excellent for both losing weight, but also maintaining a healthy balance of your lipids and cholesterol. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Diet. Yeah. What is the diet for managing people's cholesterol and keeping it 
within so a healthy range? It sort of depends. If you've got a mixed dyslipidemia or something associated with weight, if the triglycerides are high, you have to look at alcohol because that's liquid triglyceride. If it's um, weight and obesity related, then you just want calorie restriction. So if you eat nothing but chips and you eat less chips, you'll lose weight. So everyone markets lots of different diets and they say it doesn't really matter. You just have to pick one that works for you. And diet is so socially and culturally um, influenced that, that some people just can't make big changes and do something dramatic. And so it's much better to try and cut down the foods that you're eating that you like or substitute different varieties. So, for example, instead of frying your potatoes, you have them boiled because that automatically halves your calories. And so, for example, roast potatoes are 320 calories, boiled potatoes 160, and a portion of carrots 12. Excellent knowledge. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so if you swap your potatoes for vegetables, then again, you can remove the carbs. So all of that weight loss is great. And there are cholesterol-lowering plans. So some foods like plant sterols, um, oat fibre, etc., can absorb some of your cholesterol, but it tends to be mi- a minor change. So, for example, if you take plant sterols, first of all, only 10% of people with the right genetics respond. And then if you take them every day, you get a 4% reduction in cholesterol. And if I say a standard dose of statins is 40%. So it's tiny in comparison, whereas just being fitter and thinner gives you a significant benefit. So I'd say careful about spending too much money on a lot of these supplements. And if you are, you can check within two weeks if it's reduced your LDL. So if you can ask someone to give you two forms, you do one before and one after two weeks. If it hasn't dropped, don't bother. Just be fitter and thinner. Lovely. So it is just that losing weight and getting getting the, the the lipids and the fat tissue down to what is your own individual personal safe level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much. Lovely. Really very, very grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be putting a glossary of some of the terms that we've used in this episode onto our website in case you want to learn more about them. As always, we love it when you get in touch with us and interact. Please do get in touch and let us know how we're doing. Please share this episode with your friends who you think will enjoy it or get something out of it. Subscribe and review us either on Podchaser or on your podcast app. Until next time, goodbye. As always, we'd be played out by the fabulous music of Drew Worthley. Jay Guevara is on my coaster, his reef in gold stars, his red.